0: Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair.
1: Chapter 50 Contains a Vulgar Incident Let us leave these genteel heights and drop down upon the lowly house of John Sedley at Brompton. Here, too, in this humble tenement, live care distrust and dismay. Mrs. Clapp in the kitchen is grumbling to her husband about the rent and urging him to rebel against his old friend and lodger. Mrs. Sedley has ceased to visit her landlady in the lower regions, being able to patronize Mrs. Clapp no longer. How can one be condescending to a lady to whom one owes forty pounds and who is perpetually throwing out hints for the money? The Irish maidservant has not altered her kind and respectful behaviour, but Mrs. Sedley fancies that she is growing insolent, and sees threatening innuendos in all the girls' speeches. Miss Clapp, grown quite a young woman now, is declared by the soured old lady to be an impudent little minx. Why Amelia is so fond of her, Mrs. Sedley cannot conceive.' The bitterness of poverty has poisoned the life of the once cheerful woman. She is thankless for Amelia's constant gentleness towards her. Carps at her for her efforts at kindness, rails at her for her neglect of her parents. Georgie's house is not a very lively one since Joss's annuity has been withdrawn. Amelia racks her brains to find some means of increasing the small pittance upon which the household is starving. Can she give lessons in anything? Paint card racks? Do fine work? She finds that women are working hard and better than she can for tuppence a day. "'She buys a couple of Bristol boards and paints her very best upon them. "'A shepherd with a red waistcoat on one, and a shepherd is on the other, "'crossing a little bridge with a dog, nicely shaded. "'The man at the Brompton Emporium of Fine Arts can hardly hide the sneer "'with which he examines these feeble works of art. "'He looks askance at the lady.' "'wraps up the screens again in their paper "'and hands them back to the poor widow and Miss Clapp, "'who has never seen such beautiful things in her life "'and was quite confident "'that he must give at least two guineas for them. "'They try at other shops. "'Don't want them,' says one. "'Be off,' says another fiercely. Three and sixpence has been spent in vain. "'The screens go to Miss Clapp, who persists in thinking them lovely after long thought amelia writes out a little card in her neatest hand informing the public that a lady wishes to undertake the education of some little girls whom she would instruct in english french geography history and music address a period o period at mr browns "'She takes the car to the gentleman of the fine art repository "'who consents to let it lie upon the counter "'where it grows dingy and fly-blown. Amelia passes the door wistfully many a time "'in hopes that Mr. Brown will have some news, "'but he never beckons her in. "'Poor simple lady, tender and weak, "'how are you to battle with the violent world?' She grows daily more careworn and sad, fixing upon her child alarmed eyes. She starts up at night and peeps into his room stealthily to see that he is sleeping and not stolen away. She sleeps little now. A constant terror is haunting her. How she weeps and prays in the long, silent nights. How she tries to hide from herself the thought which will return to her that she ought to part with the boy, that she is the only barrier between him and prosperity. She can't, she can't, not now, oh, some other day, oh, oh, it is too hard to think of. Then, blushing, she thinks that the curate would willingly marry her and give a home to her and the boy, but George's picture and dearest memory are there to rebuke her. Shame and love say no. She shrinks from the idea as from something unholy. This combat lasted for many weeks in poor Amelia's heart. Although she would not admit to herself the possibility of yielding, she was giving way. One truth after another was marshalling itself silently against her. Poverty and misery, wanton degradation for her parents, injustice to the boy, one by one, the outworks of the little citadel were taken. She had earlier written a letter of tender supplication to her brother at Calcutta, imploring him not to withdraw his support from their parents. She did not know the truth of the matter. Jos was still paying his regular annuity, but it was a money lender in the city who was receiving it. Old Sedley had sold it to pay for his useless schemes. Emmy calculated eagerly the time that would elapse before the letter would be answered. To her son's guardian, the good major at Madras, she had not communicated any of her griefs. She had not written to him since congratulating him on his approaching marriage. She thought with despondency that her only friend was fallen away. One day, when things had come to a very bad pass, when the creditors were pressing the mother in hysterical grief, the father in more than usual gloom, the father and daughter were alone together, and Amelia thought to comfort him by telling him that she had written to Joseph— he was always generous and could not refuse money to his parents. Then the poor old gentleman revealed the truth, that his son was still paying the annuity which his own imprudence had flung away. He had not dared to tell it sooner. He thought Amelia's ghastly and terrified look reproached him. Ah, said he, with quivering lips, turning away. You despise your old father now. Oh, papa, it is not that, Amelia cried out, kissing him. You are always good and kind. You did it for the best. It is not the money. It is... Oh, my God, have mercy upon me, and give me strength to bear this trial. She kissed him again, wildly, and went away, The father did not know what that explanation meant. It was that she was conquered. The child must go from her. Her heart and her treasure, her joy, her hope, love, worship, her God, almost. She must give him up. And then, and then, she would go to her husband George, and they would watch over their child from heaven. She put on her bonnet, scarcely knowing what she did, and went out to walk in the lanes by which Georgia used to come back from school. It was May. The leaves were all coming out. The weather was brilliant. The boy came running up to her, flushed with health, singing with his bundle of school books. Both her arms were round him. No, no. It was impossible. They could not part. "'What is the matter, mother?' said he. "'You look very pale.' "'Nothing, my child,' she said, and stooped down and kissed him. "'That night Amelia made the boy read the story of Samuel to her from the Bible, "'and how Hannah, his mother, brought him to Eli, the high priest, to minister before the Lord.' and he read the song of gratitude which Hannah sang, and how she made Samuel a little coat, and brought it to him from year to year when she came up to offer the annual sacrifice. And then, in her sweet, simple way, George's mother explained this affecting story. How Hannah, though she loved her son so much, yet gave him up because of her vow and how she must always have thought of him as she sat at home, far away, making the little coat. And Samuel, she was sure, never forgot his mother, and how happy she must have been as the time came to see her boy, and how good and wise he had grown. She spoke this little sermon with a gentle, solemn voice and dry eyes, until she came to the account of their meeting. Then the tender heart overflowed, and taking the boy to her breast, she rocked him in her arms and wept silently over him in a sainted agony of tears. Her mind being made up, the widow began to arrange matters. One day Miss Osborne in Russell Square got a letter from Amelia which made her blush and look towards her father, sitting glooming at the other end of the table, Amelia told simply the reasons which had led her to change her mind about her boy. Her father had met with fresh misfortunes. Her own small pittance would barely enable her to support her parents, and could not give George the advantages which were his due. Great as her sufferings would be at parting with him, she would, by God's help, endure them for the boy's sake. "'She knew that those to whom he was going "'would do all in their power to make him happy. "'He was easily moved by love and kindness. "'Finally, she asked that she might see the child "'as often as she wished. "'She could not part with him under any other terms. "'What, Mrs. Pride has come down, has she?' "'Old Osborne said, when with a tremulous, eager voice "'Miss Osborne read him the letter. (laughs) "'Starve out!' (laughs) (laughs) I knew she would. He tried to read his paper as usual, but he chuckled and swore to himself behind the sheet. At last he flung it down, and scowling at his daughter, as usual, went into his study. Returning with a key, he flung it to Miss Osborne. Get the room over mine. The room that was... Get that room ready, he said. Yes, sir, his daughter replied in a tremble. It was George's room. It had not been open for more than ten years. Some of his clothes and gear were still there. The Bible his mother had given him was on the mantelpiece with a pair of spurs and a dried inkstand covered with the dust of ten years. The writing book, still on the table, was blotted with his hand. Miss Osborne was much affected when she first entered this room with the servants, "'She sank quite pale on the little bed. "'This is blessed news indeed, ma'am,' the housekeeper said. "'The dear little feller, to be sure, ma'am, how happy he will be. "'You had had better send that woman some money,' Mr. Osborne said before he went out. "'She shan't want for nothing. Send her a hundred pound. "'And I'll go and see her tomorrow?' "'Miss Osborne asked. "'Well, that's your lookout. "'She don't come in here, mind. "'Not for all the money in London. "'But she mustn't want.' "'With this, Mr. Osborne left his daughter "'and went into the city. "'Here, papa, is some money,' Amelia said that night, "'kissing her father "'and putting a bill for a hundred pounds into his hands. "'And, and, Mamma, don't be harsh with Georgie. "'He is not going to stop with us long.' she could say nothing more, and walked away silently to her room. Let us close it upon her prayers and her sorrow. Miss Osborne came the next day and saw Amelia. The meeting was friendly. A few words from Miss Osborne showed the poor widow that, with regard to this woman at least, there need be no fear lest she should take first place in her son's affections. She was cold, sensible, not unkind. Miss Osborne, on the other hand, thought of old times and memories and was touched. That day they arranged together the preliminaries of the treaty. George was kept from school the next day and saw his aunt. Amelia left them alone together. She was trying the separation, as poor, gentle Lady Jane Grey felt the edge of the axe that was to sever her flint. She was trying the separation, as poor, gentle Lady Jane Grey felt the edge of the axe that was to sever her slender life. Days were passed in preparations. The widow broke the matter to Georgie with great caution, but he was rather elated than otherwise, and the poor woman turned sadly away. He bragged about the news to the boys at school, told them how he was going to live with his rich grandpapa and have a carriage and a pony and go to a much finer school. The boy was the image of his father, as his fond mother would say. At last, the day came. The carriage drove up. George was in his new suit, for which the tailor had come previously to measure him, He had sprung up early and put on the new clothes, while his mother was lying in speechless grief. She had purchased little stores for the boy's use, marking his books and linen, talking with him and preparing him for the change. So that he had change, what cared he? He was longing for it. He would come and see his mamma often, often on the pony. He would come and fetch her in the carriage, and they would drive in the park, and she should have everything she wanted. The poor mother had to content herself with these selfish demonstrations of attachment, and tried to convince herself how sincerely her son loved her. He must love her. All children were anxious for novelty. Her child must have his enjoyments in the world. By her own selfishness, she had denied him rights and pleasures until now. I know few things more affecting than that timorous self-debasement of a woman. How she confesses that it is she and not the man who is guilty. How she takes all the faults on her side. It is those who injure women who get the most kindness from them. They are born timid and tyrants, and maltreat those who are humblest before them. So poor Amelia had been getting ready in silent misery for her son's departure, while George stood by, watching her arrangements without the least concern. Tears had fallen into his boxes. Old toys, relics, treasures had been hoarded away for him and packed with care, and of all these things— the boy took no note. The child goes away smiling as the mother breaks her heart. Oh, by heavens, it is pitiful, the futile love of women for children in Vanity Fair. The great event of Amelia's life is consummated. No angel has intervened. The child is sacrificed, and the widow is quite alone. "'The boy comes to see her often, to be sure. "'He rides on a pony with the coachman behind him, "'to the delight of his old grandfather, Sedley, "'who walks proudly by his side. "'She sees him, but he is not her boy any more. "'He rides to see the boys at the little school, "'to show off his new wealth and splendor. "'In two days he has adopted a slightly imperious "'and patronizing air. He was born to command, his mother thinks, as his father was. It is fine weather now. On evenings of the days when he does not come, she takes a long walk into London. Yes, to Russell Square, and rests by the railings opposite Mr. Osborne's house. It is pleasant and cool. She can look up and see the drawing-room windows illuminated. She knows where Georgie sleeps, he has told her. She prays as the light goes out and walks home silent. She is very tired when she comes home. Perhaps she will sleep the better for that long, weary walk, and she may dream about Georgie. One Sunday, she was walking in Russell Square, some distance from Mr. Osborne's house, when all the bells of Sabbath were ringing and George and his aunt came out to go to church. A little sweep asked for charity, and the footman tried to drive him away, but Georgie stopped and gave him money. May God's blessings be on the boy. Emmy ran round the square, and coming up to the sweep, gave him her mite too. Then she followed the bells until she came to the foundling church, into which she went. There she sat, where she could see the head of the boy under his father's tombstone. Many fresh children's voices rose up and sang, and little Georgie's soul thrilled with delight at the glorious hymns. His mother could not see him for a while, through the mist of tears that dimmed her eyes. Chapter 51, in which a charade is acted which may or may not puzzle the reader. After Becky's appearance at my Lord Stain's select parties, some of the very greatest doors in London were opened to her. Dear brethren, let us tremble before these august portals. I fancy them guarded by footmen with flaming silver forks, with which they prong all those who have not the right to enter.' They say the honest newspaper fellow who sits in the hall and takes down the names of the great ones who are admitted dies after a little time. He can't survive the glare of fashion long. It scorches him up. Ladies, are you aware that the great pit lived in Baker Street? What would not your grandmothers have given to be asked to Lady Hester's parties in that now decayed mansion? It is all vanity, to be sure, but who will not own to liking a little of it? So let us make the best of Becky's aristocratic pleasures, for these, like all other mortal delights, were but short-lived. The upshot of her visit to Lord Stane was that His Highness the Prince of Peter Warden complimented Mrs. Crowley in Hyde Park with the salute of the hat. She and her husband were invited to one of the prince's small parties at Levant House, where she sang after dinner. The Marquis of Steyne was present, paternally watching over the progress of his pupil. At Levant House, Becky met one of the finest gentlemen and greatest ministers that Europe has produced, the Duc de la Jabotiere, then ambassador from the most Christian king, and later minister to that monarch. I declare, I swell with pride as I write these names, and think in what brilliant company my dear Becky was moving. She became a constant guest at the French embassy, where no party was considered complete without the charming Madame Raiden Crawley. Monsieur de Truffigny and Champignac, both attachés of the embassy, were smitten by the charms of the fair colonel's wife. However, "'I doubt if Becky would have selected either of these young men "'as a person on whom to bestow her special regard. "'They ran her messages, bought her gloves and flowers, "'went into debt for opera boxes for her, "'and made themselves amiable in a thousand ways.' To the amusement of Becky and my lord Steyne, she would mimic one or other to his face, and compliment him on his advance in the English language, with a gravity which never failed to tickle the sardonic old marquis. At her little house in Mayfair, Becky received not only the best foreigners, but some of the best English people, too. I don't mean the most virtuous, or the cleverest, or the richest, or the best-born, but the best." "'People about whom there is no question, "'such as the great lady Fitzwillis, "'the great lady Slowbore, "'the great lady Grizzle Macbeth, and the like. "'When the countess of Fitzwillis takes up a person, "'he or she is safe. "'There is no question about them any more.' Not that my Lady Fitzwillis is any better than anybody else, being, on the contrary, a faded person of fifty seven years, neither handsome, nor wealthy, nor entertaining. But it is agreed on all sides that she is one of the best people. This great and famous leader of fashion chose to acknowledge Mrs Rawdon Crawley, made her a marked curtsey at the assembly, and not only encouraged her son, Saint Kitts to frequent Mrs. Crawley's house, but asked her to her own mansion and spoke to her twice in the most condescending manner during dinner. This important fact was known all over London that night. Wenham, the wit and lawyer, Lord Stane's right-hand man, went about everywhere praising Becky. Some who had hesitated came forward at once and welcomed her. In a word, she was admitted to be among the best people. Oh, my beloved readers and brethren, do not envy poor Becky prematurely. Glory like this is fleeting. It is reported that even in the very inmost circles, they are no happier than the poor wanderers outside the zone. And Becky, who penetrated into the very center of fashion and saw the great king, George IV, face to face, has owned since that there, too, was vanity. We must be brief in recounting this part of her career, just as I cannot describe the mysteries of Freemasonry, although I have a shrewd idea that it is a humbug. Becky's success excited, elated, and then bored her, At first nothing was more pleasant than to procure, with considerable trouble and ingenuity given her narrow means, the prettiest new dresses and ornaments, to drive to fine dinner parties and fine assemblies, where she met the same great people as she had met the night before, and would see on the morrow. The young men faultlessly dressed, with glossy boots and white gloves, the elders portly, brass-buttoned, polite and prosy, "'the young ladies, blonde, timid, and in pink, "'the mothers, sumptuous, solemn, and in diamonds. "'They talked about each other's houses, "'and characters, and families, "'just as the Joneses do about the Smiths.' "'Becky was soon yawning in spirit. "'Oh, I wish I were out of it,' she said to Lord Stain. "'I would rather be a parson's wife or a sergeant's lady than this.' Oh, "'Oh, how much gayer it would be to, to wear spangles and trousers and, "'and dance before a booth at a fair!' <laughs> "'You would do it very well,' said Lord Steyne, laughing. Roden would make a good ringmaster. "'He is large and of a military figure. "'I remember,' Becky continued, pensively. My father took me to see a show at Brookgreen Fair when I was a child. And when we came home, I made myself a pair of stilts and danced in the studio. I should have liked to see that, said Lord Stain. I should like to do it now, said Becky. (laughs) How the ladies would stare. (laughs) Oh, hush, there is pasta beginning to sing. Becky always made a point of being polite to the professional ladies and gentlemen at these parties, of following them into the corners where they sat in silence, and shaking hands with them, and smiling in the view of everybody. She was an artist herself, she said very truly, with a frankness and humility which provoked or disarmed or amused lookers-on, as the case may be. How cool that woman is, said one, "'What independent air, she assumes, when she ought to sit still and be thankful if anybody speaks to her! What an honest and good-natured soul she is!' said another. "'What an artful little minx!' said a third. They were all very likely right. But Becky went her own way, and so fascinated the professional artists that they would willingly sing at her parties, and gave her lessons for nothing. "'Yes,' "'She gave parties in the little house in Curzon Street. "'Many scores of carriages with blazing lamps "'blocked up the street through the disgust of number 200, "'who could not rest for the thunder of the knocking, "'and of 202, who could not sleep for envy.' Scores of great dandies squeezed and trod on each other on the little stairs, laughing to find themselves there, and many spotless and severe ladies were seated in the little drawing-room, listening to the professional singers, who were singing as if they wished to blow the windows down, and the day after there appeared in the morning post this paragraph. Yesterday, Colonel and Mrs. Crawley entertained a select party at dinner at their house in Mayfair. Their Excellencies, the Prince and Princess of Peter Warden, His Excellency Papush Pasha, the Turkish Ambassador, the Marquis of Stane, Earl of Southdown, Sir Pitt and Lady Jane Crawley, Mr. Wagg, etc. After dinner... Mrs. Crawley had an assembly which was attended by the Duchess of Stilton, Duc de la Gruyère, Marchioness of Cheshire, Comte de Brie, Chevalier Tosti, Major General and Lady G. Macbeth, Sir Horace Foggie, Honorable Sands Bedwin, etc., etc. Our dear friend Rebecca showed the same frankness to the great as she did to the lowly. Once, when out at a very fine house, she was, perhaps rather ostentatiously, holding a conversation in French with a celebrated French tenor, while Lady Grizzle Macbeth looked on, scowling. "'How very well you speak French,' said Lady Grizzle, who spoke the tongue in an Edinburgh accent remarkable to hear. "'I ought to know it.' "'Becky modestly said, casting down her eyes. "'I taught it in a school, and my mother was a Frenchwoman." "'Lady Grizzle was won over by her humility and mollified. "'She admitted that Becky was well-behaved and never forgot her place. "'It is not her ladyship's fault that she fancies herself better than you and me. "'The skirts of her ancestors' garments have been kissed for centuries.' Lady Stain, after the music scene, succumbed before Becky. The younger ladies of her house were also compelled into submission. The brilliant Lady Stunnington tried a passage of arms with her, but was routed by the intrepid little Becky. When attacked, Becky had a knack of adopting a demure ingenue manner, under which she was most dangerous." She said the wickedest things with the most simple, unaffected air, and would take care artlessly to apologize for her blunders, so that all the world should know of them. Mr. Wagg, the celebrated wit, was caused by the ladies to charge her, and one evening, leering at his patronesses and giving them a wink, as much as to say, Now, look out for sport, began an assault upon Becky. She lighted up in an instant, parried and reposted with a thrust which made Wag's face tingle with shame. Then she returned to her soup with the most perfect calm. Lord Steyne, who gave Wag dinners and lent him a little money sometimes, gave the luckless fellow such a savage glance as almost made him sink under the table and burst into tears. The ladies disowned him. At last Becky herself took compassion upon him and tried to engage him in talk, but he was not asked to dinner again for six weeks. Lord Stain's chief confidential servant, Mr. Wenham, with a seat in Parliament and at the dinner table, was much more prudent in his behaviour than Mr. Wagg. However much he might hate all Palvinus... Mr. Wenham himself was a staunch old true-blue Tory, and his father a small coal merchant in the north of England, he never showed any hostility to the new favourite, but pursued her with stealthy kindnesses and a sly and deferential politeness which somehow made Becky uneasy. How the Crawleys got the money for these entertainments was a mystery." "'Some said that Sir Crawley gave his brother a handsome allowance. "'If he did, his character must have been greatly changed. "'Others hinted that Becky begged money from her husband's friends, "'going to them in tears, falling on her knees, "'and declaring that the whole family must go to jail "'unless such-and-such a bill could be paid. "'Lord Southdown, it was said, "'had been induced to give many hundreds in this way.' "'People declared that she took money from simple persons "'under pretense of getting them government appointments. "'Who knows what stories were told of our innocent friend. "'Certainly, if she had had all the money "'which she was said to have begged or borrowed, "'she might have been honest for life. "'Whereas, but this comes too soon. "'The truth is that by a sparing use of ready money "'and by paying scarcely anybody,' "'People can manage, for a time at least, to make a great show with very little means. "'Becky's much talked of parties cost her little more than the wax candles which lighted the walls. "'Steelbrook and Queen's Crawley supplied her with game and fruit in abundance. "'Lord Stane's cellars were at her disposal, "'and that nobleman's famous cooks presided over her little kitchen.' I warn the public against believing one tenth of the stories against her. If every person is to be banished from society who runs into debt, why, what a howling wilderness Vanity Fair would be! Rents would go down, parties wouldn't be given, tradesmen would be bankrupt, all the delights of life would go to the deuce. Whereas, by a little charity, things are made to go on pleasantly enough. We call a man the greatest rascal, unhanged, but do we wish to hang him, therefore? No, we shake hands when we meet. If his cook is good, we forgive him and go and dine with him. Thus, civilization advances, peace is kept, and new dresses are needed every week. At this time, The amiable amusement of acting charades had come over from France and was in vogue, enabling the many ladies who had beauty to display their charms, and the fewer who had cleverness to show their wit. My lord Steyne was incited by Becky, who perhaps believed herself to have both beauty and wit, to give an entertainment at Gaunt House, which should include some charades." a portion of the splendid picture gallery of Gaunt House was arranged as the theatre. It had been so used when George III was king, and some of the old theatre props were brought out of the garrets, where they had lain ever since, and furbished up for the festivities. Young Bedwin Sands, then an elegant dandy and eastern traveller, was manager of the revels. An eastern traveller was somebody in those days, and the adventurous Bedouin, who had published his book and passed some months in the desert, was an important personage. He was hailed at Gaunt House as a very valuable acquisition. He led off the first charade. A Turkish officer with an immense plume of feathers is seen couched on a divan, pretending to puff at a hookah, "'This Turkish dignitary yawns and expresses signs of weariness and idleness. "'He claps his hands, and Mesrur, the Nubian, appears with bare arms, "'bangles, and every eastern adornment. "'He makes a salaam before my lord.' A thrill of terror and delight runs through the assembly. The ladies whisper to one another, saying the slave was given to Bedouin Sands by an Egyptian pasha in exchange for three dozen bottles of maraschino. He has sewn up ever so many ladies of the harem in sacks and tilted them into the Nile. Bid the slave merchant enter, says the Turkish lord with a wave of his hand. "'Miss Rohr conducts the slave-merchant into my lord's presence. "'He brings a veiled female with him. "'He removes the veil. "'A thrill of applause bursts through the house. "'It is Mrs. Winkworth with the beautiful eyes and hair. "'She is in a gorgeous oriental costume. "'The black braided locks are twined with jewels. "'Her dress is adorned with gold.' The odious Turk is charmed by her beauty. She falls on her knees and entreats him to restore her to the mountains where she was born, but he laughs. Zuleika covers her face with her hands and drops down in an attitude of beautiful despair. There seems to be no hope for her when the Kislar Aga, the servant in another costume, appears. The Kislar Aga brings a letter from the Sultan. A ghastly terror seizes Hassan. Mercy! he cries, while the Kisler Aga, grinning horribly, pulls out a bowstring. The curtain draws just as he is going to use that awful weapon. Hassan from within bawls out, First two syllables. Mrs. Rawdon Crawley compliments Mrs. Winkworth on the beauty of her costume. The second part of the charade takes place. It is still an eastern scene. Hassan, in another dress, sits by Zuleika, who is perfectly reconciled to him. The Kislar Aga has become a peaceful slave. It is sunrise on the desert, and the Turks turn their heads eastward and bow to the sand. As there are no dromedaries at hand, the band facetiously plays The Camels Are Coming.' An enormous Egyptian head, representing the ancient king Memnon, sings a comic song composed by Mr. Wag. The eastern voyagers go off dancing. Last two syllables, roars the head. The last act opens. It is a Grecian tent this time. A tall and stalwart man reposes on a couch. Above him hang his helmet and shield. Troy is down Iphigenia is slain. Cassandra is a prisoner in his outer halls. This king of men, it is Colonel Crawley, is asleep in his chamber at Argos. A lamp casts his shadow, flickering on the wall. The band plays the awful music of Don Juan. Aegisthus steals in, pale and on tiptoe. What is that ghastly face looking out at him from behind the screens? He raises his dagger, but he cannot strike the noble slumbering chieftain. Clytemnestra glides swiftly into the room like an apparition. Her arms are bare and white. Her tawny hair floats down her shoulders. Her face is deadly pale, and her eyes are lighted up with a smile so ghastly that onlookers quake. A tremor runs through the room. Good God, somebody says. "'It's Mrs. Rawdon Crawley!' Scornfully, she snatches the dagger out of Aegisthus's hand and advances to the bed. You see it shining over her head, and then the lamp goes out, and all is dark. The darkness and the scene frighten people. Rebecca performed with such ghastly truth that the spectators were all dumb.' Until the lamps blazed out again, when everybody began to shout applause. Bravo! Old Stein's strident voice was heard roaring. By God! She'll do it too! (laughs) He said. The house echoed with cries of Clytemnestra! Clytemnestra! Agamemnon, the answer to the charade, would not come forward in his tunic, but stood in the background. Mr. Bedwin Sands led on Zuleika and Clytemnestra. A great personage insisted on being presented to Becky.
0: "'Run
1: him through. Marry somebody else, eh?' said his royal highness. "'Mrs... Okay. Rawdon Mrs. Rorden-Crawley was quite killing in the part,' said Lord Stane. <laughs> Becky laughed, gay and saucy-looking, and swept a pretty little curtsy. "'Servants brought in salvers covered with dainties, "'and the performers disappeared to get ready for the second tableau. "'The three syllables of this charade were to be depicted in pantomime in this way. first syllable, Colonel Rawdon Crawley, in a slouched hat and a greatcoat and carrying a lantern, "'passed across the stage, bawling out, as if warning the inhabitants of the hour.' In the lower window are seen two bagmen playing cribbage and yawning. The Honorable G. Ringwood enters, playing the boots, and takes their footwear, and presently a chambermaid, the Right Honorable Lord Southdown, with two candlesticks and a warming pan. She ascends to the upper apartment and warms the bed. She uses the warming pan as a weapon with which she wards off the attention of the bagmen. She exits. They put on their nightcaps and pull down the blinds. Boots closes the shutters of the ground floor chamber. You hear him bolting the door. All the lights go out. Second syllable. The lamps are suddenly lighted up. It is the same scene. On the wall, you behold a sign on which the stained arms are painted. Bells are ringing. In the lower apartment, you see a man give a long slip of paper to another, who shakes his fist and threatens. "'Hustler, bring around my gig,' cries another at the door. He chucks chambermaid, Lord Southdown, under the chin. "'Crack, crack!' go the whips. Landlord, chambermaid, waiter rush to the door. But just as some distinguished guest is arriving, the curtains close, and a voice cries out, second syllable i think it must be hotel says captain grig of the lifeguards there is a general laugh he is not very far from the mark while the third syllable is in preparation the band begins a nautical medley some maritime event is about to take place the curtain draws aside now gents for the shore a voice exclaims people are taking leave of each other "'They point anxiously as if towards the clouds "'and nod their heads in fear. "'Lady screams. "'Lord Southdown sits down and clings to some ropes. "'It is evidently a ship. "'The captain, Colonel Crawley, "'with a cocked hat and a telescope, "'comes in holding his hat on his head and looks out. "'His coat tails fly about as if in the wind. "'When he leaves go of his hat to use his telescope, "'his hat flies off.' to immense applause. The music rises. The mariners stagger across the stage as if the ship was in severe motion. The steward, the Honorable G. Ringwood, passes reeling by, holding six basins. Lady screams, puts her pocket handkerchief to her face, and rushes away. The music rises up to the wildest pitch of stormy excitement, and the third syllable is concluded. Then, there was a little ballet, Le Rossignol, which Mr. Wagg transferred to the English stage as an opera, putting his verse to the pretty tunes. Little Lord Southdown now appeared admirably attired as an old woman hobbling about with a stick. Trills of melody were heard behind the scenes, gurgling from a sweet pasteboard cottage. Philomel, Philomel, cries the old woman, and Philomel comes out. More applause. It is Mrs. Rawdon Crawley, ravishing in powder and patches. She frisks about the stage with the innocence of theatrical youth. Mamma says, White child, you are always laughing and singing, at which she sings a sweet ditty called The Rose Upon My Balcony. During this, her mama, with large whiskers under her cap, seems very anxious to show her maternal affection by embracing the innocent daughter to loud laughter from the audience. At the end, the whole house was unanimous for an encore, and applause and bouquets were showered upon the charade solution, the nightingale. Lord Stain's voice was the loudest of all. "'Becky took the flowers which he threw to her "'and pressed them to her heart with a comical air. "'Lord Steyne was frantic with delight. "'So were his guests. "'Where was the beautiful black-eyed houri "'whose appearance in the first charade had caused such pleasure? "'She was twice as handsome as Becky, "'but Becky's brilliancy had eclipsed her.' People agreed that if she had been an actress, none on the stage could have surpassed her. She had reached her culmination. Her voice rose, trilling over the storm of applause, and soared as high and joyful as her triumph. There was a ball afterwards, and everybody pressed round Becky. The royal personage declared with an oath that she was perfection, Little Becky's soul swelled with pride and delight. She saw fortune, fame, fashion before her. Lord Steyne was her slave, followed her everywhere, scarcely spoke to anyone else, and paid her the most marked compliments. Monsieur le Duc de la Jopotire's attache pronounced that Madame Crowley was worthy to have figured at Versailles. Only the gout prevented His Excellency from dancing with her, and he declared that Mrs. Rawdon was fit to be ambassadress at any court in Europe. Then she danced a waltz with Monsieur de Klingenspar, the prince of Peter Wurgeon's cousin. The delighted prince insisted upon taking a turn with the charming creature and twirled round the ballroom with her until he was out of breath. The company made a circle round her and applauded wildly. Everybody was in ecstasy, and Becky too, you may be sure. She passed Lady Stunnington with a look of scorn. She patronized Lady Gaunt. As for poor Mrs. Winkworth, with her long hair and her great eyes, which had made such an effect earlier, <laughs> well, where was she now? Nowhere in the race. The greatest triumph of all was at supper time. "'She was placed at the grand exclusive table "'with His Royal Highness and the rest of the great guests. "'She was served on gold plate. "'The Prince of Peter would have given half the jewels off his jacket "'for a kind glance from those dazzling eyes. "'Jabotier wrote home about her to his government.' The ladies at the other tables, who supped off mere silver and marked Lord Stane's constant attention to her, vowed it was a monstrous infatuation. Rodden Crawley was scared at these triumphs. They seemed to separate his wife from him more than ever. He thought with a feeling very like pain how immeasurably she was his superior— When it was time to go, a crowd of young men followed her outside. Rawdon put his wife into the carriage, which drove off. Mr. Wenham had proposed to walk home with him and offered the colonel a cigar. Lighting their cigars, they walked on together. Two persons separated from the crowd and followed them, and when they had walked a hundred yards down Gaunt Square, one of the men came up. Touching Rawdon on the shoulder, he said, Beg your pardon, colonel. "'I wish to speak to you most particular.' "'A cab came clattering up, "'and the second man ran round "'and placed himself in front of Colonel Crawley. "'That gallant officer at once knew what had befallen him. "'He was in the hands of the bailiffs. "'There's three of us. "'It's no use bolting,' the man behind said. "'It's you, Moss, is it?' said the colonel, "'who appeared to know him.' "'How much is it?' Oh, "'Only a small thing,' whispered Mr. Moss, "'assistant officer to the sheriff of Middlesex. "'166 pounds, six and eightpence, old to Mr. Sawyer.' "'Lend me a hundred, Wenham, for God's sake,' poor Roden said. "'I've got seventy at home.' "'I've not got ten pounds in the world,' said Mr. Wenham. "'Good night, my dear fellow. <sighs> "'Good night.' said Ron ruefully, and Wenham walked away.
0: Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads.